Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I am tired. Oh, no. Would, What's the cause of that? Uh, I, I was, I was uh, upwriting till like four in the morning. Uh, you, you, um, I think I saw the fruits of your labor. Um, it was uh, almost 3,000 words, but I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, well, there's, there's probably a little bit of, um, I didn't have time to make it shorter uh, going on. But um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Os- is it Oscar Wilde? I think he'd be proud. Something like that. Uh, but I think that there was, uh, I don't know, I, I actually thought about this morning I woke up, like I wonder if I should have done it. Like I used to do more like three-part pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically for those who haven't seen my, my latest article, I, I attempted to, I, I wanted to articulate a, a lot of what we talked about our podcast last week, but also um, give a little more depth to it um, about how Apple Pay is approach or how Apple's approaching Apple Pay how they might succeed and why and like how it may play out. But to, to kind of get there, I, I wanted to really um, weigh the background of how I think that Apple approaches partnerships in general and how they acquire leverage, which, which isn't just about Apple pay, but to me, I think it's a very core core part of how Apple operates as a business, how they think about partnerships. And also um, to go back to kind of an ongoing discussion we've had, how they, how they avoid you know, disruption. And, mm. uh, I think that I, I, it definitely builds on the theory I kind of started last year, but I, I think deepens it in a meaningful way. I think maybe that, that theory aspect specifically is, is the part that to me is interesting that we met, might not have gotten into as much last week. Hmm. Well, I, one thing I very, and not to, not to, uh, to avoid the subject because I definitely think it's worth diving into. But one thing I very much enjoyed when I read this was you framing this whole thing in the context of negotiations and bringing in the concept of BATNA. Um, I think that was a very helpful way of explaining the way that this is all played out, particularly given the number of parties involved. No, exactly. I think that, I think that just in general, when people think about partnerships and like, People are often, I've long argued that one of Apple's most uh, underrated strengths is their ability to partner. And that that kind of surprises people because Apple has the reputation of being very difficult to work with. And that's that's also true, but those things aren't exclusionary. Like when you're, when you're operating at the levels that Apple is operating at and that their partners are operating at and the dollar figures that they're working with, like you know, logic, logic ends up ruling the day to a much greater degree than it does in kind of individual one-on-one sort of transactions. It's almost like, it's almost like in, in, in international relations, right? It's, it's almost like a real politic sort of thing, mm. if that makes sense. No, totally. It's a, and, and thinking <laughs> it's a really good way of describing it. And they're all jockeying for position, jockeying to get something out of the other one. And someone makes a move. And then how is everybody else going to react? And how three players react affects how the next one's going to. Um, but it was an interesting way of um, playing it all out. Uh, your conclusion that the retailers, I mean, the, I mean, the retailers are the being the big holdout here. I think that's absolutely right, and it's uh, and in the context of thinking about it from the well, thinking about it from the perspective of a negotiation, makes it really helpful to understand why it's particularly the big retailers. They just have there's a cost involved, and there aren't a lot of benefits. Though that may be the the additional pieces of leverage you identify, the liability shift, for example, um, it may be changing. 
So just just to back up for anyone who hasn't read mm. the article we're talking about, I wrote an article on Tuesday entitled "How Apple Creates Leverage in the Future of Apple Pay," and and basically I I noted at the beginning that um you know app Tim Cook has has established Apple Pay as like a core Apple initiative, right? It's not this isn't an Apple TV hobby sort of thing, and and I and I talked about how you know. And basically, the, the 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 overarching sort of thing, or the introduction and conclusion anyway, is that the reason I think Apple is approaching this way is that they think they have actionable leverage. Uh, and the examples I drew were were first to the iTunes Store and the music labels. Talked about how Apple got leverage with the labels because the labels basically Apple was a better alternative than than piracy. <laughs> um, and then the carriers where Apple got leverage because. Uh, Apple's able to play the carriers against each other because because customers <laughs> were switching carriers to get the iPhone, and that gave Apple negotiating power with the carriers, which, which they still enjoy today. I mean, you just uh, you know, I mean, John Legere of T-Mobile, very outspoken, but I think absolutely spoke the truth a couple weeks ago when he's like, "If you don't have the iPhone, you're screwed," and and that's why Apple succeeds in negotiating with carriers. It's not because the carriers love them or Tim Cook calls them up and you know sends them roses. It's because they have incredible leverage over the carriers. And I think it's it's really fascinating to think about how this leverage comes about. And and I again referenced in passing last week, but I wanted to make it much more explicit in this article, is that that leverage really comes from um dedicated Apple customers that that put Apple first. If that like they will go, they will. They number one want an iPhone, and number two will pick a carrier that supports it. Which flipped, you know, the way things used to work on its head. It used to be used to be your carrier first, um, and same same thing same thing with the labels. They were never able to really chip away at a- Apple, and because Apple had this super uh, high value customer base that spent a lot of money that they needed, and and so they they kind of had to go along with, with what Apple said. And I mean, there there have been exceptions, and there are people that have, that have been pushed back. But what's fascinating about this is, you know, in my article last year, I talked about that the user experience was a defense against disruption because I contended that uh, the user experience, there is no ceiling to it. It's, it's, there will always be a significant percentage of people that are willing to pay more for something that's just a really great experience. And this means that something that doesn't have as good of a user experience by definition will never be good enough. And which means that the, the it, there will be some customers that ultimately will not choose on price. And as long as people aren't choosing on price, then Apple is Apple is okay. And um, what's fascinating about this is is this frames the user experience not just as a defensive issue, kind of against disruption, but also as an offensive issue. Because what Apple is doing now is these partnerships they create make the user experience even better. An iPod was made even better by the addition of the iTunes Music Store. The iPhone was made even better by obviously, you know, carrier support and and being able to use it everywhere. And 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 in this case, what happens is basically Apple has a great user experience, which makes consumers really loyal, which leads those consumers to put pressure, market pressure on Apple's potential partners, which lets Apple negotiate a better deal, which leads to a better user experience. Because Apple, you know, Apple doesn't let carriers put on all their crap on phones, for example, or 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 all their ugly branding and stuff like that, which makes it a better experience. So it becomes a virtuous cycle where Apple actually, it's not just that the low-end competitors like Android phones, for example, 
It's not that they're getting closer to Apple. It's actually that Apple's in some respects accelerating away because, you know, look at Apple Pay. It, it's, it's, it's such a superior experience because all the pieces that are there than it is on Android that, that you could argue the gap that Android has to overcome now to be quote unquote good enough is actually increased. And that that's actually, it's not supposed to happen that way. It's supposed to only ever decrease. And it's to me, I find this personally, obviously I find this compelling, which is why I wrote it, but I think it's, it's, it's a very challenging, um, these, you know, kind of argument against the idea that disruption is inevitable. I mean, I, the, the disruption is inevitable. I'm not sure that disruption is always inevitable. I, so the, the last time we, <laughs> yes, I, there, there's lots and lots here to agree with. And um, one of the things that I really appreciated about working with Clay is his, like, his natural inclination when something, um, when something looks unusual or where it doesn't appear to work, uh, where there's an anomaly, he's like, go for it. Like you should jump on the anomaly and it's going to help you better figure out why the world has worked or something about the way the world works has changed and and the old way of thinking about things is different. Now, am I, uh, I mean, the, so the last time we talked about this was in the context of the gaming consoles and we bring up, we brought up, I brought up the example of women's handbags. And I think there is, I, we talked about the, the notion of jobs to be done and determining whether disruption happens. And there's an emotional job to be done. And there's a, there's a performance, like a more performance attribute level of the job to be done. So in the context of a handbag, it like the performance of it, it carries things around, but there's an emotional aspect to it and how that makes you feel. And the emotional jobs are very hard to disrupt. Um, they're traditional luxury goods. Um, uh, and, and the basis of performance doesn't change very much. Like the bags don't improve markedly. And so you're able to focus on more on that emotional side of things. You brand, you differentiate and people, uh, people, uh, they, they love those products. But when the, when the basis of performance relies more on technology, then disruption is much more likely to take root. So you can have a, like a horse drawn card or something, and it can be as gilded as you want, but someone comes along with a model T car, it might not be as luxurious, but the basis of performance or the car gets you places faster and does so more effectively. And then you look at people who drive around in horse-drawn carts and you think, well, you're just doing that because it looks good and you seem a little silly. Now, I think what's really interesting to me about... Um, so, so my natural inclination in explaining why Apple always does well and why it has survived disruption is because of the nature of the way it's organized. It's more integrated than most of its competitors who are more modular. And integration gives you a big advantage when it comes to developing new product categories. So I think a big part of the like a big part of the reason why they're able to do things like the iPod is they're integrated across software and hardware. It was the same with the iPhone, it's the same with the iPad and it's probably going to be the same with the Apple Watch. Like I think Apple is best positioned to um, best positioned to be able to uh, introduce new product categories because they have a degree of expertise and control over all the levers that enable them to 
to like put things together in a way that modular, modularized companies are not able to do. And I think that has been a big help to them in terms of staving off disruption in their previous product categories. Um, I think you'll hear the executives talk about it in terms of the halo effect. People came in and started playing with the Macs because of the iPods. Same with the iPhones and the iPads. Like they get in on these other devices and it makes people more interested in the previous device. Now, that's not to take away from the point you just made, which is there is there is something changing and I haven't entirely put my finger on it where I, I and I, I feel it has I feel it has to do with two things, both of which you've you've articulated and we've talked about um, that's enabling that like it's it's changing something. And one of them is that the old world was measured in relatives. Like you looked at market share to determine whether you, whether you wanted to develop for a platform or not. Um, now, because of the internet and the reduction of friction, you look at it in terms of absolutes. And a small, like the top of the market, when you look at it across the planet, the top of the market is actually quite a big number. And it it means that whereas like when I was back using a Mac, I used to be an Australian Mac user and trying to get software from a physical store was an absolute it was it was pretty much impossible. It was you were you were like really having to fight. Now it's just like you log onto the internet, the app, the app stores there, so on and so forth. It's really easy. The other thing, I mean, I, I feel like that's changed the d- dynamic a little bit, and it's helping. Uh, it's it's playing to Apple's favor in terms of focusing on the high end. Like the the that there's something in that dynamic that has helped them. The other thing that I think has really helped them has been. The, uh, the emergence of uh, the app stores. So you, you get like the apps on the iPhone and so on and so forth. It gets, it gets lock-in, but you also start getting people developing for the platform and so on. There's something in that dynamic as well where there's, there's a network effect involved and there's a degree of lock-in. Now, again, I think, I, I, I think those dynamics play into what you're describing um, I, it play, Apple is just such a crazy outlier in terms of general disruption theory anyway, but I, I think those dynamics play into what you're describing and I think you're absolutely right. I think the user experience is and the way that they're attracting a whole range of high-end customers across the planet that become very attractive consumers I, there's, there's something you, and I loved the article and the way that it positioned it. I definitely think there's something to this. So I think you, you in general, I'm, I was glad at the end you seemed to be softening because I kind of took the first few minutes of your, of your now it's your turn to monologue, if I might point out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if I might, it, it was a very good articulation, I think, of generally accepted disruption theory. And, and I, I, I find it very unsatisfactory. Like I, I'm not content, honestly, with trying to, I'm tired of trying to fit Apple in and I, I actually, I, I, I'm pushing, I think on some really fundamental problems with, with the theory and the way it was formulated, particularly in relation to technology. So um, let me start at the top. I, I actually tried to write, write some things here down here. So number one, you talked about that uh, there's the emotional job to be done and right. I, I, that's spot on. That's why luxury bags, you know, persist despite equal or less functionality. And right. that certainly does play to Apple's favor. I, I don't, I don't disagree. Um, however, 
I find that uh, an incomplete explanation for why there is a preference for Apple devices. Because to me, if you distill that down, what it comes down to is an iPhone is the same as an Android, but it has a better brand and it has a better sort of like personal attribution to it. And what's interesting is I actually think that is particularly applicable uh, in China or here in Taiwan and in, in, in lots of parts of Asia. Like there are, there are, to be frank, aspects of using Android here that are better, or especially where before, especially when you came to like culture and keyboards and lots of all the sort of like weird hacks that people would do, which is, I think, in my experience, more prevalent here. There actually was a case where the iPhone, where Android was in some respects superior for the job to be done, but it didn't have that sort of prestige attached to it that an iPhone, that an iPhone did. And so I think that actually is a good explanation in some local context, but broadly, I don't find the emotional angle satisfactory to fully explain to fully explain why why Apple kind of avoids disruption. To me, I think there's there's something that's being valued. That's yes, I guess there is an emotional component to it in that you're not getting annoyed at a piece of software at a device or you're being delighted by things that happen but these things that but these are in response not to some sort of prestige or some sort of attri- you know non-tangible attribute they're to actual interaction with the device the actual action of using it is delightful and something that you enjoy that makes you that makes you feel good and to me this is a separate category than just something being a luxury brand and having all the attributes that go with being yeah. a luxury brand. No, totally. So there, there is the luxury brand, but what you're describing it actually relates to the the, the quote-unquote technical performance. It's right. not it, just, it, exactly. it's how well the bag works, not just how good the bag looks or how well the bag is branded. Right, And but it's a technical, it's a technical aspect that isn't, and I think where it gets fuzzy is it's not easily measured. Right, you can't put a number on the number of yeah. cores or the amount of memory or the pixels in the screen, and and I think that's what there's like kind of this middle area that in kind of traditional disruption theory that isn't that isn't really talked about. I think enough, and to me, that's the specific area where Apple's really pushing forward, and and this is why I. I also get the argument that you you kind of part two of the kind of the standard explanation for Apple, and I think that um you know our mutual friend Horace Deju has articulated this quite a bit is that the idea that Apple avoids disruption because its integrated nature allows it to create new products, and this is to me this is and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is almost an image of a of a a dog or something like running ahead of like the fire. Like it, it keeps, it keeps escaping disruption by creating new things and the fear or the danger and arguably the discount that Apple had a lot for a long time on wall street was the, was the fear that they wouldn't be able to keep doing that, especially yeah. once jobs went away. What happens when they stop creating new products? I'm actually not making that argument. I think that, I think there is also something to that. I do think that the way Apple is organized and the way they incentivize uh, themselves uh, has a very powerful effect on new product creation and innovation. But my argument is about existing products. It's not that the iPhone yeah. is going to get disrupted, so they need to create something new. It's that the iPhone, as is, is is remark is much stronger and has a much bigger moat mm. than I think most people articulate. So I, I'm actually uh, I get that yeah. explanation, but to me, that's a separate. That's a separate so let, question. So let let me reframe it. I, I li- listening to you talk is really helping me um, frame this up in my head. And 
what so so if any one of these products stood by themselves so if apple just had the iphone and it and it just and it had an amazing user experience how do you think apple would do as well like do you think the iphone would be doing as well as it is now given the other suite of products that apple has uh, that's an interesting question. I think um, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's 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 almost a it's almost one of those parentheticals that I don't like getting into because it's not it's not reality. Um, and I, I'm not saying that to sidestep the question. I I, th- I, I tend to agree with um, John Syracuse in his latest uh, OS 10 review about Yosemite, which I thought was actually one of his best ever. And particularly the ending, he talked about the idea that. And almost, I almost feel like this is one of the reasons why he's thinking about not continuing to do OS 10 reviews. It's because Apple Apple is very much moving towards, they've done it kind of implicitly for a long time, but now they're being very explicit towards Apple delivers a suite of products, a suite of mm. personal computers that, that fit into all parts of your life. And to me, this is like, this is the big bull story for Apple. Like the, the infiltration of technology into our daily life is not going to slow down. It's only going to accelerate. And basically what Apple has done is Apple is a personal computer company. That's all they've ever, they've all they've ever made. I think with the big exception being the iPod, which is really more of an accessory, but all the other ones, they're just personal computers that fit in with your daily habits in different ways and in different places. And so I would, to answer your question, I do think the iPhone would likely still be similarly success, would still be successful, but it's almost like it's, it's a moot point because all this other stuff does exist. And I do agree. Yeah. Makes it stronger, but that's fine. I'm willing to take on just the iPhone standing alone because for a lot of people, they only do have an iPhone. So, so I guess the reason why I ask it is that you're attributing Apple's ability to resist disruption to um, Apple's ability to create a user experience. And I want to propose an alternative hypothesis, which is that Apple has been able to redefine the job that technology does in people's lives by the suite of products and, and services that it's pulled together. And so it's, it's, uh, it, it's not it's not, I mean, no doubt the user experience is great and that's really important in getting people to adopt um, in getting people to adopt um, their products. But it's the fact, it's the, it's, they, they, I mean, the, the way I think about it was like when Apple went from selling computers to like the digital hub, like that's an example. And they bring in, they bring in an iPod music player and they bring in iTunes. And it's, it's not so much the user experience as it is their ability to experience to take the products and build the the suite of products around problems people have in their life. And yes, doing it in a, a d- delivering a delightful user experience is actually, I mean, it's, uh, I, I mean, that's part of the reason why I love their products. But this idea that the user experience alone defends against disruption, I'm not sure, I, I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong. And, and I, you make a really good case for it, but I actually wonder whether there's not an alternative explanation in that because Apple is integrated, they're able to uh, bite off and tackle new jobs that no other company is able to do. And as they uh, as they evolve the focus on the new jobs to be done, it kind of staves off disruption 
because they leave the old job behind that if they just remain focused on, they might have had problems with. And perhaps Apple Pay is actually an example of this. It's we have the phone, we have a watch. Now let's extend what, what problems can we solve on top of that that nobody else is in a position to do. And it's actually the unique integration that enables them to resist the disruption as opposed to the incredible user experience. I, I, honestly, I'm a little confused. I feel like you're kind of twisting yourself in a pretzel here to, okay. to not attribute to the user experience. For one, I, I'm not sure how you're defining the user experience, but I, I feel like I'm maybe using a slightly broader definition than you are. Because when you talk about the any sort of experience or all these things working together, I, I don't see how that doesn't, that's not a part of the user experience for one. Two, um, I, I disagree that Apple's success is because they, I think and they're they're extending their success and part of their success is they have this suite of products but the fact remains a a lot more people have just an iPhone like it, it, the numbers of iPhones sold vastly outpace the numbers of 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 iPads and especially the numbers of Macs out there so most people are using an iPhone with a Windows computer like or or no computer or no, I mean if you have an iPhone you probably have a computer but they're they're also being used with with Windows computers for one for two there there's a counterexample Microsoft sells the entire stack they have a phone they have a tablet they have PCs they have this new fitness band sort of thing that's a wearable and and but no one I think is is um looking for Lumias to suddenly, you know, increase in value or increase their average selling price and increase their margin just because they happen to have the stuff that works together. At least I'm not. I mean, I, my, maybe Microsoft is hoping that would be the case. Um, but, I, 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 sorry, go no, ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, that's a fair point and I appreciate you pushing on me and it's, it's, pro- it's probably not clearly articulated. In response to the Microsoft, in response to the Microsoft um point. I, I think you're absolutely right. But integration and modularity, uh, the benefits accrue at different points in time. When you're creating it, when you're creating a new category, you want to be integrated. To come along after the smartphone category has been created and integrating at that point just seems to be the worst of both worlds. Yeah, well I, mean, I think we've talked about this before. I I, I, I this is I, I referenced before that I the the maybe a misinterpretation of tech. I feel the whole mod there's a lot of problems with the modular integrated discussion when it comes to technology. And I think we've talked about this on past episodes, so I uh, I won't try to dwell on it uh, too much. But um, one, uh, there's things I would say. One, I don't understand why the modulated integrated discussion uh, it, it has come to mean the division between OS and hardware. Like the traditional idea of integration in like theory discussion, not disruption theory, but just generally speaking in theory and like why firms should integrate versus when they should partner is, is usually all in the manufacturing side of things. And, and it's not really about like this idea that software, the problem with this, with this interpretation is it's basically treating software as just like another piece of the stack, as opposed to something that's yes, it's part of the stack, but it's also a very different in a lot of deep, important, fundamental ways part of the stack, if that makes sense. So like, for example, I think I met, I, I do, I'm sorry, I think I'm repeating myself, but I, Samsung in many respects is the most integrated company out there. Like they make everything from chips to to screens to the entire mm. phone. And if you looked at the hardware side of things, they're very highly integrated. And actually, if the integrated versus modular distinction 
is does help explain some of Samsung's troubles right now and why why they are being kind of classically disrupted. Like it's not it's not just uh it's not just companies like Xiaomi, but also all these other kind of no-name Chinese companies that are literally pulling pieces off the shelf. They pull a system on a chip from from MediaTek or that does most of the phone functions. They get screens here, they get cases there, mm. they slap it all together and they sell it for half the price because mm-hmm. all there's intense competition at each layer. And so the intense competition each layer drives down the prices. And Samsung, which is using its own internally sourced components, doesn't have that degree of competition or that degree of visibility of price. And this is classic, this is classic business theory about the problem with integration is that it doesn't expose you to the proper competitive forces that drive down costs at each layer in the stack. Mm-hmm. And and so they are being disrupted. And if you look at Apple, Apple, Apple all the different pieces in the Apple stack are are widely distributed among a whole wide range of suppliers. And they supply from multiple suppliers and they have a lot of competition there. And Samsung is one of the competitors. Samsung and TSMC are in are in this big fight to to supply Apple chips. TSMC won A8. Samsung reportedly won A9, next year's chip. We'll see what happens with, with A10. And Apple is benefiting. And but but yet it's it's just completely commonly accepted wisdom, broadly accepted wisdom that Apple's integrated and Samsung is modular. And and to me, one, I'm not sure that's true. And two, the software is special. It's not just another component of the system. And uh-huh. it's not just that the integration here lets Apple create new products. I believe that the differentiation is sustainable. Like the the advantages you get from having building both the software and the hardware and and the specific parts of the hardware, like the chip, where, where Apple can design the A8 chip to be perfectly tuned to the software, which has a big impact on things like battery life, for example. Um, those are sustainable, defensible benefits that come from integration that that modularization will never be able to meet. Again, this is specific to software because software is so malleable. It's malleable in a way hardware components aren't, and that makes all the difference in the world. So, so uh, lots of things here, and I probably should have been writing down too. But your point around integration versus modularity, and just assuming it, um, you're absolutely right. And from a hardware perspective, um, Samsung is definitely, um, definitely much more integrated than Apple. Uh, when I'm talking about integration, I am talking about integration across hardware and software. Um, and I, I feel like, you're right, just to say something's integrated and something's modular is is not the right, like, thank you for calling me on it. Um, I'm, I'm referring across hardware and software. And when you look at it like that, Apple is integrated and Samsung is modular. Because but, 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 they, sorry, sorry, just to jump in for a sec though, but yeah. that, that, that's, that's my point. I feel like that's what, that's what, gets people analyzing Apple in trouble is, is I, I know you were talking about that specifically that integrated, you were talking specifically about hardware, software and uh-huh. module. You're talking specifically about the separation between hardware and software. Mm-hmm. My point though, is I think to use the word, I think the word integrated as applied in that specific circumstance means something meaningfully different than the word integrated as traditionally used in business discussion okay i'm i'm totally willing to i'm totally willing to grant you that um, well, so, and if it wasn't clear i'm glad you pulled me up on it oh no i, I, I no so I, I i guess we're saying the same thing but my point is i think when you this 
in some respects, actually respects the theory of disruption more in that it preserves the idea of low-end modular in a mature market, the low-end modular entry upsetting the integrated entry, which is better at the beginning, right? Um, Right. And if you remove the software part of it and just only focus on the hardware, the theory actually holds. It holds in smartphones, the the only place the theory holds down is if you falls down is if you is if you f- take integrated to only talk about the hardware software aspect of it right totally i i, I, I yes absolutely i mean it it's also worth i mean i i think the point i was trying to illustrate is is explained in the context of and and correct me if you feel that this is an unfair or an or an inaccurate analogy to use but the the way that the personal computer market evolved where apple did was able to deliver an uh, a remarkable user experience and did really well at the start of the pc industry and and was quite profitable but as it matured it ended up doing less well as the modular players were able to figure it out and get close enough, but also cut the price down to such a point that it left the people who demanded that better user experience. Um, it, 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 there was there was a very big price to be paid for that, and Apple couldn't achieve the scale. Now I feel like they've learnt a lot of the lessons from from that time uh, in terms of like like you described. I'm really glad you brought up the early PC PC issue because to me, I, I actually great work by you. Nice job, James, because this, this is something I meant to bring up before. I think it's, I, I think this gets at why in my estimation, a lot of analysis of, of Apple, of the iPhone, even of disruption as applied to technology sometimes misses the mark. It's because I think it misunderstands what happened to the Mac. And what I mean by that is uh, I don't believe the Mac nearly failed and Apple nearly went out of business because it just was way too expensive for the superior experience that it offered. My contention is that the Mac in the 90s sucked. There was a very narrow angle where it had a nice like GUI that was wasn't to use, but from a technical performance perspective, it was vastly inferior to Windows, especially once Windows 95 came around. It, it didn't have managed memory. It crashed all the time. Uh, there were all the aspects of, of um, you know, all the compatibility issues, all the stuff that didn't work. Like the reality is from, it wasn't just that, it wasn't like the iPhone, the contention I'm making where it was a superior experience and more expensive. It was an inferior experience and more expensive. Like that's a pretty terrible combination. And I don't think any business will succeed in that. My no. takeaway though is the, the question though is, is to what do you attribute the failure? Do you attribute it to the high price, which in my estimation was, was some of the thinking that went into using the Mac as an example of, you know, low end dis- something yep. falling under disruption, or do you attribute it to it being a crappy experience and being poor execution on Apple's part? If you look at the second factor, that changes the lessons to be learned significantly. Well, but there's a there's a there's the question before that though, and that is like what caused it to be crappy? If it was if it was so far in front, how did 
how did how were modular players able to catch it up and surpass it? And I think so so these theories are never perfectly predictive. We've talked about this in terms of it being a uh, in, in terms of it being a very long multivariable equation and each one explains some of it. And I think what the theory would assert is that what you just described is the standard thing that happens in an integrated versus modular world. At the start, when when the complexity and solving solving the problem is actually figuring out how all the components best work together, that the integrated player wins. But once those once those pieces have been figured out, it's actually the modular players who are just best able to focus on their own little piece of the puzzle that will end up winning. And that's why Microsoft, Intel, like Wintel ended up beating, like, like the theory's explanation would be, now Wintel beat Apple on the basis of that. The reason that the Mac sucked was because they were trying to do too many pieces of too many things and an organization, a typical organization that bites off that many things is not going to be able to do it. Now, what gets interesting is, is the question around, it appears that if you, if you believe that and you believe that the, the theories that we're referring to, integration versus modularity and disruption, hold for a large explanatory power in that multivariable equation, that, that somehow Apple right now is defying gravity. It's defying the theory. And I think that's what makes it interesting. And I, I think your explanation of great experience is, is very compelling in explaining why they've managed to do as well as they have. What's interesting, I mean, there's also another interesting question to me, which is like, why is it the way it is right now versus the way it played out previously? Because... I think the way it played out previously is the way that it typically does play out. Like it makes sense to my mind that that's what happens. The integrated player can't develop all these different pieces and sustain scale and figure it out once all the interdependencies have been worked out. And yet somehow Apple's managing to do it right now. Well, I mean, just setting aside right now for a moment, I mean, I think it's a fair question I think there are aspects in which I agree with you, like the Mac fell behind from a hardware perspective, and that's where the the kind of overly integrated aspect came in. And in that respect, the, the Mac was far more integrated in the 90s than it is today, right? Mm. The, the Mac, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's, again, this is, why, this is why I get so frustrated by this distinction. Um, the Mac right now, people refer to it as being integrated relative to, to say, Windows, but everything from the OS level on down is is all the same sort of stuff. It's this, and it's benefiting from the same sort of competition, the same sort of modularity. So mm-hmm. what exa- what it, what is it exactly that makes the Mac more integrated than a Windows machine? It's like, the fact that the, the the company that designs and pieces together the the hardware is also the same company that designs and pieces together the software. But but like but, that. but but that's that's a very that's a very specific definition of hardware. Like Apple is. Apple is in a is a, the assembler only. Like every single piece within the Mac itself is is all modular. That's I mean I I think if you were to sit down and talk to Johnny Ive, he would dispute that. I don't think they went and bought all the pieces for the Mac off the shelf. Like I for, from the design onwards to I, I mean the 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 technology underlying it, like the the componentry, yes, but I don't think. 
like the way that the componentry is pieced together and small subtle decisions like they're able to create unique keys on the keyboard to like there are all kinds of small things that because they have control over the assembly of the hardware and design of the hardware to the, the casing um to, to like the the gentle pulsing sleep light like these and uh, having control over assembly of the hardware and assembly of the software gives them a unique ability to do things that other people can't do I agree but to me this is this is why over indexing on this point to say to insist that this means that Apple is integrated and other PC manufacturers aren't is to is to be so focused on one detail as to miss the as to miss the point. I, I, what I mean is, Apple is benefiting from is getting all the benefits of modularity in the Mac. Mm-hmm. Would, would you agree? Yet we insist on calling them an integrated solution. Whereas the Mac back in the '90s, like Apple was designing much more. They're designing like much more like com- on the component level and. So one, I agree that's part of what got them in trouble. And two, just the OS, like their actual specialty and their differentiation, it sucked. Like, I, I mean, I know I'm I'm making all the long-term Mac nerds have a conniption here, but, <laughs> but the reality is from a technical performance perspective, it was way behind. It was drastically behind Windows. Um, and again, on a only on a very narrow, gooey experience metric was it was it ahead. And it's an it's an attestation to how far ahead it was that it still sold, you know, even despite that fact. Um, no, 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 agreed. I mean, so I think we can. I think I don't want to get into an argument about semantics. So I think there are two types of integration that we're talking about. Like one is complete hardware integration, more like Samsung is now, and one is hardware software integration. Now, the point is that Apple was integrated across both in the past, and now they're then they're not. They're really integrated across hardware software. But yes, I mean, don't they on their Mac? Don't they design the logic boards? Like, like it enables them to do things like the eleven-inch. Like the the MacBook Air, like it's not like they're just they're they're wandering down to the market in in Taipei and pulling bits off the shelf. It's a bit more involved than that. It's a bit, but not much. I mean, they're they're mm. they design the 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 logic board, um, or as us old PC people would call it, a motherboard, um, to you know from an industrial design perspective. But the actual components and pieces that are on that logic board, like the the bridges and the and the controllers and all that sort of stuff those are all off the shelf parts agreed I, i'm not i'm not yes totally agreed but to um, me to me and i, I again we, we, we could probably go around a circle on this but to uh-huh. me i think it yes it is a semantic question but to me it's actually a the semantics matter and the sure. reason they matter is because if if it is agreed that by virtue of being a case assembler, just to just I'm I'm being I'm using an extreme term on purpose, but just by virtue of being a case assembler and an OS maker, that makes Apple an integrated company. Then it, there's a problem in my estimation with the entire theory around integration versus modularity. On the other hand, if we argue that actually if you think about it from a deep level and where the benefits of modularity and integration arise, Apple's actually quite a bit more modular than perhaps is popularly believed. And so maybe the theory is right in what it says about integration versus modularity. Maybe we were just using 
not quite the right word. And I, I feel the second one actually, to my mind, makes uh, is a lot more consistent and makes a lot more sense. And that's why I guess I am you know kind of doubling down on the, on the semantic issue. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, okay. I, yes. I. 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 I okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I guess that's a good way to, to to close that section out. Um, there's one. There's one thing you did you did mention. Um, that I think that I think is interesting, and I've written about this previously. But uh, the other big distinction between between the and now I'm rehashing everything before, but uh, between the PC versus Mac and the iPhone today is the is who's buying it, who's making the buying decisions. And, and remember we talked about before, so disruption theory kind of already, as we talked about, acknowledges the idea there being technical specific, technical performance and emotional performance. And I'm, and I'm arguing there's kind of this gray third area in the middle, which is kind of like the experience aspect of it. Um, we, we all already know that, uh, the emotional experience matters much more in the consumer market than it does in the business market. So, so let me let me let me be semantic here. Emotional performance matters much more when the technical performance of all the various competitors are much more similar. Now, that happens more in the consumer market than it does in the business market. Um, okay. Uh, so, 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 like the handbags. The the technical performance of most of the bags, like there's there's not like. There aren't actually any TARDIS bags out there, but I my suspicion is if TARDIS bags were to come along where it was just the size of a normal purse, but you could put as much stuff in it as you wanted, and by whatever means of production they managed to make it the equivalent price of a regular Louis Vuitton bag, you would look at people who bought a Louis Vuitton bag and you'd be, wow, why why are you do you're doing that only because you think it looks cool, but the basis of performance has shifted so much that you must. You're valuing, it's this funny thing, it's the horse-drawn cart. Like if you saw someone walk down, the, drive past your house in a horse-drawn cart going to work, you would think that person was crazy because, so it's it's not, it, business versus consumer is a correlation on that. It's actually the, the it, it, it has to do with technical versus emotional performance. So that's interesting you say that. Um, just aside, just to go on a bit of a rat hole. So are you suggesting then, and I'm being a little provocative here that mm. the Swiss are indeed fucked because the argument that you just made, um, wouldn't it be that the Apple watch or a, a similar sort of product is going to be so hard, far ahead from a technical perspective that a watch, which competes primarily on the emotional aspect is doomed. That's a really interesting question and it has to do with whether you think a watch is a piece of jewelry or whether it's a functional thing. And my assertion would be that a watch is actually a piece of jewelry rather than something that's functional. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I, 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 okay. Uh, that's fine. I, mean, I, I do think that it, it it's be, a really good point. It's a really good point though. And it's a really good question. Well, it would be an interesting chance to put that to the test, but we're, we're down a rat hole. So just to, um, we'll assume we, we're all, we all, we're all on the same general page there, but just generally, <laughs> generally speaking, I, I, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're on the same, we both believe that in the eighties and, and nineties, the primary purchasers of computers and the ones that mattered and the ones that were catered to were businesses. 
And the consumer purchases tended to come down to, I want something that's the same as what I use at work. Um, you know, the majority of people were introducing to computers at work and then they went to, 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 to the home. And that meant that um, business buyers, which generally buy in bulk, where the buyer is not the user, tend to distill the purchase decision down to the technical questions, to the technical performance questions, mm. questions which can be written down, which can be measured, which can be put on a pro and con sort, sort of list mm-hmm. and can be compared explicitly to price. Whereas in the consumer market, which as you just noted, uh, generally speaking, there's a correlation where in the, in the consumer market, there's much more of a focus on the emotional jobs to be done. And I would argue because the purchaser is also the user, there's also a much more focus on the experience of it, of what it is like to actually use it. And this is that gray third area that, to my estimation, matters much more in the consumer market than it ever does in a business market. And again, by business market, I'm not saying all businesses. I'm saying businesses in which the purchaser is not the user. Mm, this is really interesting. And when you describe it as a third, and, and maybe you've been saying this all along and it just took you saying it like that for it to click in my mind. When you say it as as three things, the, the three elements that we've talked about. So the two that, the two that I raised that the, the 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 technical versus the emotional and when you add it in as the third there's actually a third one around experience which obviously isn't technical it probably looks more like technical because it has to do with how well you're able to use the product but it's ver- you're right it's very hard to measure when when i think about it in terms of those three things it, it what you're describing actually it really clicks a lot more. Now, my assertion would be that the technical performance must be in the same order of magnitude for the other two to take effect. Um, it, so the the exp, uh, yeah. Well, this goes back, this goes back to the problems with the Mac in the '90s, right? It just fell right. so far behind technically that the experience aspect not only became less important, but it actually became impinged upon. Because like it's not a great experience when your whole computer crashes because one app misbehaves. I am totally with you. I think you're absolutely right. I think as long as you can keep the technical performance to within, it, it like if if there is an order of magnitude shift around technical performance. So like what happened, what started happening with PowerPC and the Intel, like back in the dark days when IBM and Motorola were both thinking about pulling the plug on it. Like then, you all your user experience doesn't matter in the world if if you like end up too far behind on the technical performance. The user experience doesn't matter but if your technical performance is relatively stable um, then user experience and emotion come much more into play and I think that works um, I mean you're right it probably works more in um, it works more in on the consumer side than on the business side but uh, even on the business side like if the technical performance is equivalent then I think most businesses would be willing to consider user experience as part of this and I think it's part of the reason why you see so many more Macs Apple computers in business now like they're running on Intel and standard off the shelf off the shelf hardware like you described um, but it's being put together in a much more compelling way and people prefer using it so Yes, I, 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 like the way you described it just then of technical performance, emotional performance, but also experiential performance, what it's like to use, that makes a lot of sense to me. 
Sorry, I was just uh, pouring out a celebratory goblet of champagne. Um, it only took me a year, but I, th- I think I got you to come around here. Um, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, I, uh, well, that, that, I, that, that's what I meant when I when I referred to what 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 Professor Christensen got wrong is is I felt he was he it was missing the, this experiential aspect. And that's why the theory failed to explain Apple. And by the way, so, you're, in the, you're in the valley. Just to be clear, I mean, Macs aren't really penetrating the, the enterprise. Uh, well, sorry, I, li- <laughs> I live in the bubble. Listen, but here's but, the th- but, just but, one thing. Like in the same way that your language just then got me across the line in terms of understanding what it is you were saying, I think your language, like particularly, I know we've had this out previously, but your language, particularly the title of that article, it, it implies that there's something fundamentally wrong with disruption theory. Like it's, it's not that he got it wrong. It's like the process of theory building is is what's going on right now where someone puts a, someone, it's, it's like there's a swamp and someone puts a pylon down in the swamp and the pylon is able to support the weight of the world and explaining the world and predicting the world up until a point, until all of a sudden it can't anymore. And then you need to put down another pylon to help build on top of it. Now, when in the way that, and again, this could just be me, and I'm freely acknowledged that I'm I'm close to Clay. He's a good friend and I probably take um, critiques of his work more personally than most people do. But when I hear what what clay got wrong with disruption theory it's implying that there's something wrong with the pylon and i'd actually say um that what you're doing is something else which is helping to explain another circumstance which is more building on top of what's already there as opposed to saying what's fundamental that there's a crack or the pylon actually is complete like there's a crack in it which i'm not necessarily sure there like in so much as it explains what it explains i think it's right i think what we're doing here is building on top of that and helping explain more oh fair enough i understand that you you did raise it raise that with me at the time i mean just in my defense i mean i didn't say why i didn't write why he was wrong i was saying what like what specific point is is he wrong about here? And I understand your point. And so we, 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 I will stop my, I will save my celebratory drinking for another time. No, no, no. Um, but I'm glad. I'm like this is this is this is this this is one of the things I learned from him. Like, don't shy away from things when you're wrong. Like when there's an outlier, don't run away. And and too many researchers, too many academics, like they run away from it. Like you, I, I go in class and I do the same thing with him that I would do with lots of other people. And that is like, I try and pull it apart. And you, you do that to some professors and they get very defensive and other people are like, actually, this is really valuable because if you can find out a circumstance or an example where our understanding of the world isn't right, it means that the theory we have of the world isn't right and therefore we need to improve it. And studying anomalies like this, studying where it doesn't explain things is actually a really valuable way of doing that. So I think this is great. And I feel like I've learned a lot. And the way you came at it, like describing it in those three prongs really helped me to understand what you've been driving at. Well, I mean- have the celebratory drink is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, you you consistently are pushing me on this, so I, maybe I'm explaining it better now because you've been pushing me for for a year. By the way, sorry, there's a there's a whole host of kids in my house now. It sounds so cute. <laughs> well, it's hilarious. Yeah. Well, we have the. I mean, there's no daylight savings time here, so our timing is a little off. So we we didn't we time we started a little later than. 
than we normally would. It sounds um, like there's some celebratory drinking going on next door. <laughs> <laughs> it's all like one and two year olds. It's not just it's not just my kids. It's their cousins as well. Oh, uh, awesome. Um, so no, I, I mean it's it's too bad. I know that. Um, I, I suspect that. I mean, I, who knows? You know him better than I do. But Professor Christian's book writing days may be done because it's it's almost like there's got to be like a long-term like Apple in there somewhere. I mean, he met, he just had the interview with um, Henry Bodge at Business Insider where he, he's, he's still kind of maintained the Apple will be disrupted thing, which again, according to the theory as it is, makes sense. But he had a really interesting sentence in here. He basically said, and so ultimately, unless there is no ceiling, at some point Apple hits the ceiling. And the idea is that's when the, the modular folks catch up. And again, we've already discussed the integrated versus modular issue, but specifically with the ceiling point, that's what I think is so fascinating about the experience vector is because I have difficulty comprehending how you hit a ceiling when it comes to the quality of an experience. Like, can an experience really ever be so good that, I mean, and that, 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 that's almost like, it's like he has the framework clearly in his mind about how Apple might be an exception um, and maybe this is the missing piece. I mean, it, who knows? Maybe maybe someday we can get a chance to talk to him. But yeah, it's yes. I mean, I read that interview too, and we've talked about this previously. Where he's <laughs> he's 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 despite the fact that his research is applied so much in technology, it's it's funny. He doesn't know it as as like doesn't know all these techno. He doesn't stay on top of all these technologies as much as everybody else. And he's and he he, he does have a tendency to talk about these things. Um, and he focuses purely on the theory, and there's a, there's oftentimes nuance that on, you only get when you're picking up these products and using them on a regular basis. And I think the perfect example of that was his prediction on the initial iPhone. He's just like, "Well, this is a fancy this is a fancy phone." It turns out actually it was just a really low end computer, or at least that's how that's how I I saw it. But yeah. Uh, no, um, totally. It's totally, it's totally fair. And I think, and just to be clear, and I, I've written this several times, I think I've said this in the podcast. I mean, uh, I come at disruption as a student and a believer in it. And mm. so my attempts here, it's not like Jill Lepore trying to say that it's a myth. Um, it's trying to strengthen it and make it better because there is this massive anomaly right in the middle of it. And, uh, and I'm interested in seeing how to... It, how that anomaly might make sense. And the reality is, I mean, like disruption remains probably the most compelling sort of investment thesis um, yeah. in, in technology specifically, just because technology is like evolution supercharged, right? Ch because if change happens so much faster than other industries, you get to actually see this stuff play out in, whereas in other industries, it can take a, a much longer, much longer time. Well, it's yeah. I think it has to do with the fact that the technical performance plays such a large part in it. And yeah, that, that makes sense. And it evolves and so quickly. Improves so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so you, you, it's like the, it's like fruit flies. You get to see the evolution happen much faster and explain it. I mean, it's really interesting to think you can. I mean, the the yeah. I actually, I'm not gonna. I'm going to stop asking that question because I'm about to start talking about integration modularity and I'm worried I'm going to set you off again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's almost like one of those things like me talking about native ads, like where when I say native ads, I mean like Facebook ads and I mean yeah. like, like all these Pinterest ads, whereas some people hear it and they only hear like yeah. the Atlantic putting a Scientology you know, essay in, no, no, in no, their feed. Totally. 
I, I mean, language matters. I, and I totally get what you were saying. And I think the distinction is great. But then you need to then be careful that it doesn't become down to an argument around semantics, right? But I totally get what you're saying. And I, I, I to- totally get it, both on native ads and the distinction between different types of integration. But I do think there is an integration where you are across hardware and software. And I do think that's part of Apple's strategic advantage. No, I do. And, like and, I th- and, I think, and I think it manifests itself in the experience, right? You. There is, there is a, so the, in, in traditional sort of analysis of, of integration, the idea is you to evaluate whether your company ought to vertically integrate or whether it ought to partner is you, you talk about, um, uh, man, it's been a while since I've studied this stuff, but there's costs, right? There's the cost of, there's the cost of vertically integrating, which may be acquiring a company, maybe building up capability, lots of capital costs, mm. um, versus the, and, but there's the benefit of you get more seamless integration things, you know, stuff like that. Whereas with partnering, the cost is like transaction costs. It's the cost of actually making sure getting on the same page, standardizing, um, enforcing contracts, like all that sort of stuff. And so you weigh the rel, you weigh the relative costs. My contention is that in this experience vector, there is a, there is an intangible cost that is hard to measure but where modularity uh, has significant costs in the experience. And again, I think this applies specifically to software. And the reason it applies to software is because hardware, because hardware has to be built at scale, uh, hardware will always tend towards standardization because you need it to work in as many places as possible to reap the the benefits of scale. Because software is infinitely malleable because you can make a new version at no cost. And you can make changes and you can have like branching at, at no cost. Mm. A lot of that drive towards standardization and the decrease in cost that result aren't present. So just it's just when so, once software is involved because the nature of software is so different than hardware, it's almost a, a different conversation entirely. Yes, I, and that Yes, I totally agree, but there is still something to be, and I totally agree with both your points, but there is still something to be said around uh, like a software only company versus a software and hardware company. Just like there's something to be said for software and hardware versus hardware only. One other thing that I'd really want to emphasize is when you say transaction costs, it almost plays down the complexity of of, of what's involved with that. And I, I, I actually kind of explored this a little bit on when it came to the, um, the Dreamliner, the 787, and I wrote something about it on integration. And it's more of the traditional hardware type integration that you're talking about because you're trying to contract between parties on pieces that you don't know how will fit together yet because you don't, that when you're trying to build, when you're trying to attach a wing to fuselage, you, you you need to have the parties and you're doing it with new materials that have never been done before and you're trying to improve the aerodynamics. It's really hard for you to contract that across parties unless you know exactly how it's going to fit. And so just, do you know what I mean? No, it's, a perfect, have, it's a perfect example. It's like, it's, it's such an unbelievable disaster uh, that resulted from modular, modularizing way too early. 
Totally. And so there are instances where you, like the, the hardware, the hardware example definitely makes it easier to understand versus hardware and software. I mean, th- this conversation is bringing to mind a whole bunch of questions, which is uh, like, to my mind, can modular players like two, two specifically come to mind? Can modular players ever catch up on the user experience? Uh, sorry. And I'll be specific. Uh, m- m- yeah, well, no, I don't need to be specific. Like truly modular players, like a modular ecosystem, like Android. Like, let's use Android as a as a proxy for a modular ecosystem. Can they ever catch up on user experience? And two is like, it. Why aren't there more companies integrated over hardware and software like Apple is? If if you can. If you can reap the benefits of hardware, being a, a modular player in hardware by just pulling like off-the-shelf components for things like CPU and GPU and stuff like that, and you can you can you can assemble them your way, and you can build the software on top of it. It's it begs the question why there aren't more companies structured in this way. So um, th- th- those are some good questions, um, and actually might have some answers for you. Um, so first off on what can beat Apple uh, or what can beat this on the experience angle, I think what it is, is redefining the job to be done or competing on a new vector. And so, for example, if the most important means in the, the most critical part of the experience uh, becomes, for example, say voice interaction, right? You still haven't watched mm. her, I presume, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> the fine. The joke continues. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but, but I mean, I think that, you know, there's something like that where it's, it's, it's a direct connection with like the cloud and with services. And there isn't really the physical component, which Apple really specializes in from the experience perspective. That's how they can get defeated. It's, I don't think anyone will beat them head on in the physical experience of using a phone. As long as we are touching and using something, Apple's going to be okay. As soon as we're no longer touching something, that's when they're in trouble because now, now it's a new vector of competition. The same or, job is being yeah. done, but it's being done in a different way that Apple's not that where their integration experience not just only doesn't help them, it could already be a, be a big limitation. And that that might be, I mean really interesting. Uh, is it then a well that's, really interesting. That's, that's the long-term bear case for Apple is when do we stop touching our devices? Or or when the intelligence is so much is is that it's um Right. I mean, when what, what, what Google now has just become so much better than Siri. Yeah. It's just overwhelming, right? It's like exactly. No, exa- that's exactly what I was trying to articulate. Like when it has to do with integration on a device that you do touch, but the integration up into the cloud becomes more into- important than the integration on the software on the device with the hardware on the device. Exactly, and and in that respect, you're gonna you're it, actually if Google wins that way, where it it comes down to that you just said the words yourself integration between the cloud and your device, Google in that case will actually be the integrated player. They will have the superior experience because they have the better complete stack. It's just, it's just the integration is happening at a different point. Mm. So number two, um, uh, why aren't there more companies than Apple? I, I think, I, I think in some respects we may be one thing. You, wait, to, wait, one, wait, 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 stop. Could you repeat that question? Cause I heard it as why aren't there oh. more companies than Apple? Oh, sorry. Sorry, whether your second question was why don't more companies do what Apple does, where where they they kind of integrate the system and then they build the software on top of it and get the yeah. benefits that Apple does. I, I think there's two big reasons. 
I think one is we, by focusing on Apple, we maybe have overstated it a bit in that Windows, for example, and Android now, they absolutely get way more cost competition in the stack because they have all these different manufacturers using the same OS that absolutely does drive down prices. And the reality is in in the consumer market, in the massive market that there is, the majority, the vast majority of people, number one, prioritize price. And that's why Apple, you know, has like 10% of the gold market will we'll only ever have, I don't know, 20% maybe, um, and maybe more, maybe less. But the point being is like, it's ultimately a limited market one. And two, Apple dominates that market so thoroughly, it's not clear how anyone can break into it. So it's more like Apple has a monopoly almost on the in the, on the market of people who will pay extra for the experience vector. And so, so it's, oh, so uh, all right, you've just caused me to like, and I don't, I don't. You've caused, you've caused a thought. Um, I can't pronounce the name, but the Chinese manufacturer Xiaomi. Z- Xiaomi. Do you think that they are actually disrupt? Like, I, I, I hate myself for using this word. In, in, I don't know. There's something about saying it that makes me very cautious. But is there a basis for which, if you think there are three prongs? that Xiaomi are actually competing not on technical performance, but almost entirely on experience and brand? Absolutely. I think they, like, I think their threat is both over and understated all at the same time, if that makes sense. And what I mean by that is, I, I think they're over, their threat is overstated in that they're, 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 most of success is China. They're expanding into into um, other countries now. Most uh, uh, weak IP countries take take of that what you will. Um, hmm. But and so from that respect, they're, they're they're not necessarily competitive. And two, like just in the Chinese market specifically as it is now, the iPhone still carries um, a certain a certain prestige in the kind of the emotional component that that Xiaomi that Xiaomi does not in in. Frankly, for the population of iPhone buyers, I'm not sure ever will. Mm. What is true, though, is that Xiaomi is competing on the on this vector, on the experiential vector. And where they're succeeding is, one, Xiaomi, it's almost like the phone market has become so massive that there's two markets. There's the high-end market, which Apple basically has a huge share in, and they're in the process of evicting Samsung from. And then there's the low market, and Xiaomi is like the high end of the low end market, if that makes mm. sense. So they're 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 very approachable from a price perspective. They're by no they're not a Veblen good, right? They're not a good that is worthwhile just because it's expensive. Um, but but they're they're the best product you can get at that at that price point. That's one. Two, they're they're particularly successful in young people, like under the age of twenty five. And like teenagers, college, this age. And um, again, I, I hesitate to, to wade into any sort of like national like mood or things sort of things. But there's traditionally in China, there's been a perception, a, a preference for foreign made goods. The Especially once you're rich and once you once you want prestige and the idea that they're, they're going to be better quality. But the reality is, is we all know that's changed, right? I mean, the iPhone's built in China. Lots of products are built in China. They're built at very high quality, very good specifications. Is there crap built in China? Of course there is. There's crap built everywhere, but it's not, that's not a fundamental definition of a Chinese good. A Chinese good can be just as good as any other good. 
And what you see, I think, is this younger generation that's come up with China only ever being a rising power, only ever increasing in wealth, only ever getting better. And I think their perception of Xiaomi as a brand um, is going to be a lot different than the kind of the older generation's perception of Chinese brands broadly against, say, an Apple or against other luxury goods. And over the long run, as that as that population gets increased buying power and becomes to define the market more and more, the threat of Xiaomi to Apple, I think, will become more and more significant. Mm, the rise. I mean, I, I remember that you know the bear case for China or China only ever copies things is that like name me a famous Chinese a national or international Chinese brand and I wonder whether this is going to be the one no the first but, one anyway yeah I mean in the consumer market anyway right because I mean obviously there's like some of the industrial brands like like Huawei yeah. and stuff like that um yeah but no I I I, I I agree. And that's why I think they're, I think they're overrated as a threat to Apple in the short term. They're a huge threat to Samsung and to all the other um, Android players. But I do Mm. think they may be underappreciated as a long-term threat. And again, part of this being a long-term threat is the importance of China specifically as a market to Apple um, is, is massive. Like it's, it's easily their second most important market. And it's arguably in the long run going to be going to be their most important important market mm. and and where Xiaomi's brand resonates the most and where the emotional benefit of having Xiaomi and the experiential benefit of using a Xiaomi are most dominant is in China specifically. And so, yes, you can argue they're only really a threat to Apple in the long run in China, but China is so big that that's big enough to be a threat to Apple as a whole. Uh, two questions that are going to display my ignorance around this. Technically, most of those phones are inferior to, like, well, to a price equivalent Samsung phone. Is that true or no, not? No, no, I don't think that's true. They use pretty high end, especially. Well, it's hard to say. the The most popular Xiaomi phone is called the Redmi, and that uses inferior components. Uses MediaTek system on chips, which is a great system on chips, but they're not. I mean, the Qualcomm ones have a. It's like ninety percent to hundred percent, you know, kind of performance issue. Um, and, um, they do have As a in high- they lag a hundred percent or it's not, no, no, it's, no, no, there's no. a 10% it, difference, right? There's a 10% difference. Got um, it. whereas they, the high end phone, which I think is currently the me four or maybe the me five let's come out. Um, that is, uh, that uses top of the line components and it's priced very aggressively, like $350 or $300 or something like that. And basically they price it at cost. And then over time as, as, they gain economies of scale. They don't lower the price, and so they they their profit margin. It's almost like the console model, right? Where they, yep. they make money. They make money over time. Um, Got it. What, is it is it an Android fork? Uh, What's the software? It's super un, like in China, I believe it is, but outside China, it's not. Um, whereas wow. in, in China, in China, it's not. No, very few phones in China are 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 pure Android or are like official Android. Like but there's folks entire, of Android. Yeah. There's an entire ecosystem of stores and all that sort of stuff. Like, and so all these, like, you know, uh, um, Horace always makes these charts of like smartphone dominance and other is winning. Right. So I made a joke on Twitter that I'm going to start a smartphone company called other just to mess with the chart. Um, <laughs> but that other, none of them are really running, are running stock Android. And I know we've been, we'll have to say this because we're more than an hour in. We've had a discussion about Android open source and sort of stuff. Yes. We've hinted at it, but we should certainly, this is a this is the specific arena where it's probably most interesting to to discuss it. What well, one more quick point though before we wrap up? Um, the other reason I think why other companies don't do what Apple's doing is that the the uh, hardware integration business mm. is a very different business than the software business. 
And, and Apple has two unique skills. One, they create software and two, they create computers. And so a company like Microsoft, for example, has to build up that expertise, to build up that. And it's it's not just different from a, a skill standpoint, but it's also from a culture standpoint. It's different from a business model standpoint. Like Microsoft has traditionally had 90% plus gross margins, Like where, but hardware doesn't work that way. And so they have to change very many fundamental aspects of their business to make this sort of business work. Whereas Apple having built hardware from the beginning has always been set up from a business perspective, from a monetary perspective, from a skill perspective to do this. Mm, really interesting. Uh, one other thing, like I made a very un, uh, inarticulate point around Apple's, the sum of Apple's products being more than their individual pieces. And um, and certainly not to take away from the point that you've made around this idea that there are three prongs of performance that we should judge. Um, but I do think there's something there uh, around the way that they've done that across hardware and software and pulled more and more pieces together in a way that's compelling that does explain part of their success. But I think well, I no, need to I, do some I, more I noodling on that. Oh, well, I, 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 would, I agree with the general principle. I would I think you call you said I pretzeled myself, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I do think that 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 advantage is actually is only they're only going to really start now really reaping it. I actually wrote after WWDC this year. I wrote my title. Of the piece was "Growing Apple at WWDC," and my point was that um, as Apple's kind of picked off the easy fruit in iPhone growth, like the big screens are coming, they got on China Mobile, they got on NT Docomo. Um, now they needed new ways to grow the bottom line. And to me, mm. a lot of the stuff they did in like much more explicitly tying together their products. And so if you have one, mm. it's better if you have another one. That not only is a better experience, but it also drives additional revenue on a per customer basis. So they can increase how much they're making on their pre-existing customers. And so I think they've benefited implicitly for a long time, but it's been more of a, I like the iPhone, I'll probably like the Mac. Now it's a, I like the iPhone, but my iPhone will actually be become a better yeah. device if I have a Mac. No, totally. And I remember talking about that now. I, I do. And the idea that, you know, you, you're working on something on your computer and then you flick it to your phone. At least I think the idea of that's great. I've yet to really get the hang of how to do that on Yosemite and iOS 8. I see this weird little Safari icon in the bottom left-hand corner of my phone. I'm like, what's that all about? But I definitely think there's something to that. No, definitely. Um, so we'll see. I actually haven't had a chance to install Yosemite yet. Uh, I've just been, oh man, it's been a brutal month. I did that. Yeah, what your your site, it sounds like you haven't just moved house. You've like technologically moved as well. Uh, I, I, I haven't moved per se. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to put a little something up on the site kind of publicly announcing this, but um, I've... I've consolidated my membership options from kind of like the, just the daily update only. And I had the access, which included like a message board, um, in-person meetups, stuff like that to just being one where they get all the benefits. You get the daily mm. update, you get the message board, the forum. And I, as part of that, I upgraded the forum, the old one, um, sadly went out of business. Um, and so mm. and this is better now. It's fully integrated in my site, but also, um, I, I'm deeply appreciative to kind of the people that bought the, I know a lot of people bought it just to support me. Um, and I, I'm at a point now where um, got a pretty good size membership base. I feel, I feel comfortable and confident, you know, proceeding at just the, the, the level that I'm at, and and ideally offering additional benefits to people that um, that are both 
uh, more attractive, so they'll sign up, but also more sticky, so they'll be less likely to churn, less likely to leave. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting point because I think we talked about this before. Like the danger in offering multiple things is that sometimes is that customers don't customers don't average or they or they, I don't know. We talked about four. Basically, if you offer something that a customer values at a two and something they offer at a ten, they'll evaluate it as being a six. Whereas you offer them just a 10, even though yeah. it's fewer things, they'll actually value it higher. And so I, I, I know that a lot of people like getting just a daily update and that was really attractive. And I get a ton of email from folks saying that I should raise my price and you know all this sort of stuff. But to me, I, I would love to have a broad base. Um, and I think I'm getting there and ideally build you know more of a community and discussion and stuff like that. So um well, just, add, I mean, yes, I, I think you're right. And I mean, you get to, this is where you get to play the rubber meets the road on all this stuff we talk about in terms of actually doing it yourself. But I think like maybe you just focus on the daily update as the big thing people get. And then there are all these other things that happen to go alongside with it as a result. But, yeah, I think so. I'm going to update kind of the, the, the sale and the sell page. All right. um, and I, I'm going to do a pitch for you too, right? It's like, I don't want you having to tell, tell people how good your daily update is. Like I get a lot of shit in my inbox and I delete most of it, but I love reading your daily update every day. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking about it and Ben is not paying me to say this and yes, I'm his friend and yes, I probably say nice things about my friend, but you should really consider subscribing because it's like some of the most insightful stuff I read every day. Well, now I've decided when I'm going to edit this because I feel <laughs> good. But yeah, but so, yeah, so basically I had the trip, I had the trip I mentioned and then we moved house and like this alternative message board I was using was closing the end of the month. So I had three things in the month of October that had to, that had to get done. So needless to say, a OS, an OS update was not in the cards. Yeah, no, fair enough. Totally get it. Cool. Well, uh, well, good discussion. I, I am, um, I am. Yeah. Go have your celebratory drink. (laughs) Well, it's funny because when I, I said I wanted to at least touch on this, you know, like, well, we already talked about all that stuff. We have to talk about it again. I'm like, no, I feel there's a new angle here. So now I'm, I, I'm, I'm feeling very satisfied. Good. You deserve it. It was, it was, (laughs) it was like, it's half the battle is like coming up with a good idea, but then half the battle is communicating it in a way that like, and I mean, I don't know if your 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 war or your battle should be about convincing me, but like the way you articulated it um, uh, over this last hour really helped me understand what you were driving at. No, it, it, I mean it's interesting because um, I remember back when I was in back when I was in school, uh, I, I don't something that I've I've found um, I, actually now I think about it, I've kind of gotten away from it. I should get back to it, but it's like what's like one specific thing. You know, I, I, I'm not a believer in like five-year plans. This is where I'm going to be with my wife. Because the reality is like, if you, uh, the biggest problem with having a plan is that you arrive where you wanted to go. <laughs> and then you, <laughs> and then you realize once you're there that actually the world went another direction and you missed it because you were so focused yeah. on achieving, achieving your plan. And, and so for me, I've always kind of had the philosophy that I want to have my, I want to have my head up and I want to be in the moment so that when an opportunity comes along, I can take it. And in the meantime, Instead of like striving for what's next and trying to get there, which is so much of it depends on stuff that's out of my control, right? It's so much like what is in under my control? The only thing under my own control is like myself and like my personal development, the way I think about things and approach things. And so I've always tried to like in different seasons of my life to you. And that sounds really cliche to say Mm -hmm. that, but 
like what's the thing that I'm that I'm working on? And I remember um, Apple, actually Apple, after I was at Apple University, I, I was very frustrated because a lot of this stuff that I'm talking about now, the the germinations of what I wanted to say were there. The seeds, the seeds were there, but I I couldn't articulate any of this. And I learned a lot, and I think I contributed a few things when I was there. But a lot of this sort of thinking definitely wasn't. It was there, but it was it was like. I, it was like gold ore, right? There's a bunch of crap all, all, all over it or something. I'm not to say what I have to say is gold or whatever. That's an but. amazing analogy. Yeah, I just compared my insights to gold. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I like there's crap everywhere. I, I really appreciated that. Well, Keep going. Sorry. Well, no. So when I went back to school, when I went back to school my second year, um, my real my real focus that year was I felt like if I was presenting someone else's idea or writing about someone else's idea, I could do it very succinctly and very clearly. And I also felt that I had a lot of ideas of my own. What I couldn't do was was express my own ideas well, Be, you know. And it's actually, that's actually really hard because the problem is if you if you think of something unique, it's likely because you approached it from a different way than other people did. Mm. But that, by definition, definition means you can't really walk people through your thought process because if it was obvious to them, they would have had the same same thought process. And so you have to kind of put yourself in the shoes. You have to be very empathetic almost with, with the other person and think about how do they think about the world? Where, where are the guideposts for them? And given their kind of internal map of the world and how does it work, how can I walk them down a path so that they arrive at the same conclusion, even though it's a different path that, that I myself took? And one, it's really hard. And two, it's actually one thing that I found is it it's almost it's almost humbling because what you don't get to share is kind of like the aha. You don't get to show them how clever you are because cleverness doesn't, doesn't get the point across. And so it's like, what actually, what, what, what is actually important? Is it actually convincing someone or is it actually being clever? And it's funny because we had that, we had the debate about the Apple watch and it's almost like where we probably both got in trouble, but me specifically was the desire to score rhetorical points and the desire to be cleverer actually got very much in the way of, of understanding of understanding i agree with that i mean and you know what part of the fun for me in all of this is like getting to walk down these paths that you're walking down and coming at it with a different angle and saying it in a slightly different way that might make it might make it slightly easier to understand though we do tend to argue about whether it's the right path to go down which is also fun too but like i i totally get what you mean about it's easier to explain other people's ideas than your own and do it succinctly. And it, that, that's part of the fun of this whole thing for me is like doing that to each other. Oh no, totally. And, 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 and obviously, I mean, my, my piece this week was built up through that, through the podcast and even my watch piece before, like, um, and sometimes it goes the other way where the podcast right. comes after or whatever, but no, it's, it's great. I definitely love it. So. We actually made the top ten in the technology section of iTunes. Yeah, we got the, up to, we got up to number eight. It's weird how wow. that's, it's it's kind of like the I think it's kind of a last twenty four hours sort of thing. So we got uh. some sort of big big pickup. But yeah, tell your friends, um, tell people to to subscribe. Yeah, we're 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 almost famous. Well, I'm almost you're famous and I'm almost famous. How about I, that? I, I wouldn't say I'm famous. Um, <laughs> I, I also think we're, we've overdone the self promotion at this point. Yeah. Okay. We should stop. Very good. Always a pleasure. Oh, it sounds good. Have a good day. See ya.